Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, a podcast that asks the hard questions about leadership. Each episode explores the tension or paradox of leadership, asking how founders, entrepreneurs, and scale-up CEOs decide which way to turn. My name is Ian Windle. And I'm Ben Wales. Joining the two of us, we'll have guests, founders and leaders of successful businesses, sharing their stories, as well as authors, keynote speakers, and experts, digging into the rough and smooth of leading. If you like what you hear, subscribe and join the club. Tell us your opinion, ask a question, or introduce a guest. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, and welcome to Gritty Leaders Club. Today's episode, Ian, is Dream or Dream Team, a head-to-head between you and I, because your instinct is the number one to be world beating is vision or the dream. My instinct is to be number one, you need a dream team. It's about that team at the top. Before we get into that, what's got your attention, Ian? Well, it's a book this time, Ben. It's by a lady. Is it it about Michael Jordan? (laughs) Uh, Not this time. No, it's, it's a lady. She's a doctor. She is a a British applied psychologist. She's called Dr. Pippa Grange, and she's written a book called Fear Less, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself. Mm -hmm. And like you, I think, we love reading books about psychology and what makes us tick. And it really got my attention. I, I came across it, actually, when I was reading the autobiography of Eddie Jones, the England rugby coach, and he was talking about Dr. Pippa Grange. She was actually worked with the England football team during the last World Cup, and she took the fear out of taking penalties, for example. Um, And she goes on to say, basically, our lives are ruled by fear, and we need to get over that. And what I thought I'd do is I'd just share some of the myths, because she she shares success myths about fear. So I just thought I'd share a couple of these. I think she shares five, so I'll just share a couple that occurred to me were really important. The first one she calls, losing turns you into a loser which is obviously a myth. And, you know, there's lots of examples. J.K. Rowling, uh, her manuscript was rejected by 12 publishers. You know, if we come back to Michael Jordan, funnily enough, you know, great quotes about missing 9,000 shots during his career and 28 times trusted to take the game-winning shot and he missed it. So, you know, what she obviously goes on to say there is actually successful people have probably lost more than unsuccessful people because they turn the learning and growth of the of the loss to an advantage and they move on. So that was the first myth that really struck me. Second one was fear is the best motivator. And, you know, she talks about some people use fear in telling people what they've got to do in organizations and especially in sport. And it can be a motivator in a crisis. She goes on to talk about um, Aaron Raston, who cut his arm off to escape uh, and obviously had a fear of dying. If you remember the boulder, I can't remember that it was, it was the book about the number of days he was there. That's right. Um, yeah. And he had to saw through his arm with a <laughs> army knife. Thanks for bringing that image back in. That, I know it's horrible, isn't it? There's a film about that as well. But so she says in some ways, in a crisis it can be, but in normal times, it's just intimidation. It's uh, exhausting, you know, and, and it's a, she describes it as a lazy way to motivate, which, which I think it is. So it's a great book. It's very readable. Um, and 
actually, I think it's something I'd really recommend people to pick up and read because yeah, you hear hear this in many psychologists talking about about how we live our lives and what stops us achieving things. And actually, this will fit very nicely into my part of what we're talking about later today. Yes. Well, the one fear I must mention is the fear of ridicule. Now, this is part of Brené Brown's brilliant work, and I see this all the time in newly formed teams and established teams as well. Fear of ridicule. Somebody not speaking up, not putting issues on the table, not putting their ideas forward because they're worried it won't be good enough. It will be shot down. Watch out for that. Yeah. What was the book called? The book is Fearless, How to Win at Life Without Losing Yourself by Dr. Pippa Grange. Great. Hmm? What about you? What's caught your eye, Ben? Well, we're talking about teams today. So what's got my attention is a book, The Wisdom of Teams. It's by John Katzenbach, Douglas Smith. It's been out and around for a long time. On my bookshelf, this is the Bible, the first book anyone should read about high-performing teams. One of the things I really like about Wisdom of Teams is it contains 10 findings about teams. And Katzenbach and Smith They've divided these into five common sense findings and five uncommon sense findings. So let's take a quick look at these. A demanding performance challenge tends to create a team. We've got to stretch our teams. Yep. The disciplined application of team basics is often overlooked. And how often do you see that, Ian? Teams not paying attention to their basics size, purpose, goals, skills, approach, accountability, all of these things. Mm, mm. Number three, team performance opportunities exist in all parts of the organization. Are we using teams enough? Number four, teams at the top are the most difficult. And boy, do I agree with this. You know I do. At the top of a scale-up organization, we have a team that has to operate the business very often, as well as seeing the future and leading us towards it. So two horizons, tough job. Yep. And then number five, most organizations intrinsically prefer individual over group or team accountability. And I guess this makes sense, doesn't it? Because the way we get to the top, the way people progress in an organization is by being great at their job, becoming experts. Yep. So those were the common sense findings. Let's take a look now at the five uncommon sense findings. Companies with strong performance standards seem to spawn more real teams than companies that promote teams per se. Interesting. High performance teams are extremely rare. 100% agree with that. Yep. We'll come back to that a bit later, I expect. Hierarchy and teams go together almost as well as teams and performance. Yep. Teams naturally integrate performance and learning. I think that's great. We don't tend to think about that aspect. And number five, teams are the primary unit of performance for increasing numbers of organizations. And again, I agree. Um, yeah, org charts are necessary, but I tended to think always of my company as a team of teams. And I think that's a really powerful way to think about uh, an organization. And by the way, those teams, they can cross the boundary from the into our suppliers and into our customers and the other partners that help us move forward towards uh, your topic today, towards our vision. So wisdom mm. teams, Katzenbach and Smith. Wow. Sounds a great book. 
And how does it, I mean, you said it's uh, the best book, you know, the, the go-to book for teams. Um, perhaps a more common book for people to have read would be Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's sort of been around for a while. It's a very simple model. It's, a, it's written in a story in a fable way. Um, this looks like a very different book, Ben. What, what's, what's the big differences? Why, why do you rate this so highly? A couple of reasons, Ian. Wisdom of Teams tells the story of about 10 real-world high-performing teams. So it's super readable, super relatable, and, you know, living the lives of these teams through the short stories, we kind of get to experience what makes them absolutely world-class. And I think that's so informative. And you mentioned Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Any team that's worked with me knows I hand everybody a copy of Five Dysfunctions of a Team on day one. It's definitely a go-to book. It's not the complete model of team performance. It's a model of team behaviours, good, well-beating team behaviours, but it doesn't include everything. Team performance is also built on stretch, purpose, and on approach. It's more than behaviors which is the piece we get brilliantly from Lencioni very good very good love it so should we get on to the main part of the uh, the podcast today let's do that so dream or dream team let's start with some definitions what do you mean by dream yeah well it's a good place to start I always like the, the, the big question a dream itself is uh something that you know we all go to bed at night and have a dream don't we um, it may be crackers, you know, it may be ridiculous. But what I'm talking about is a dream in an organization, something that's unreasonable, which we might in normal parlance call a vision. But if it's a vision or it's a dream, uh, it needs to be unreasonable. Why is that? Because if it's reasonable, we can do it very easily and we can do it uh, with the capacity and the capability we have today. The challenge in this and the excitement in this and where the energy comes from is that we create something that we don't have the capability or capacity to do today. And then what happens is the team, whatever team is involved in this, they get a little bit fearful, a bit anxious, and then that starts to transfer into excitement and energy. And then you start thinking, outside your comfort zone and then you start thinking of new products new services new markets acquisitions mergers all the sorts of things that could come onto the table for the team to discuss and that's not to say you're going to do all those things but it just opens the conversation and makes it really exciting so you're talking about two things one is vision a compelling vision that is stretching beyond the current ability of the organization to achieve yeah you're not talking about purpose or mission, just vision. Correct. Absolutely. And the second thing you're mentioning is questions. And you know I love questions. The reason you're talking about questions right now is if the vision is stretching enough, then it demands that the team begins asking questions which are exploratory, inventive, curious and begin to unpack what's going to be needed to make that vision come true. Exactly. So let me give you an example. If you look at Tesla's vision, it's to create the most compelling car company of the 21st century by driving the world's transition to electric vehicles. 
So if you set that as a vision, the questions just fall straight out of it. Mm. Well, what does the most compelling car company look like? What does compelling mean? Who's compelled? How do we drive the world's transition to electric vehicles? What, what do we mean by that? Do we mean we go to everyone? Everyone can afford an electric vehicle. Do we go into all the markets of the world? How long is this going to take us? So I think the best visions prompt a huge number of questions that will just fall out of them. And they're really stretching questions too. So what you mean by dream is a stretching vision that prompts this type of question. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and, it, and it excites your top team to have to move in that direction. Got it. And dream team, what do I mean? What's my definition? Let's begin by defining team. And I'll use a definition from Wisdom of Teams, the book I mentioned earlier. A team is a small number of people with complementary skills who are committed to a common purpose, performance goals, and an approach for which they hold themselves mutually accountable. That's a team. A dream team is more than that. What I mean by dream team is those teams that occasionally appear that outperform all reasonable expectations. Often they outperform their own expectations as well as beating, outperforming other similar teams and the really standout teams in their arena. And uh, so there's a word you used a couple of times there, which is an interesting word, expectations. Mm -hmm. Where do their expectations come from? What I mean is dream teams have the capacity and the tendency to surprise. They achieve things that weren't anticipated or expected, whether that's inventiveness and creativity or the level of their achievements. That's what I mean by exceeding expectations. Let's take an example. Let's look at Formula One right now, Grand Prix racing. This is the pinnacle of motorsports. Every team in Formula One is a high-performing team. They go beyond the definition of team I gave you earlier. They're all achieving at the highest levels. They're meeting expectations. Every team designs and manufactures and races and develops a car that's wickedly fast and takes advantage of the current state-of-the-art in aerodynamics, material science, engineering, you name it. And it's not easy. And they all perform at the very highest levels. And amongst them is the Mercedes Formula One team, who have just won their seventh consecutive Constructors' Championship. That's never been achieved before. To do that, they have to keep on surprising themselves and all their competitors. They have to be beyond expectation. So where do expectations come from? I guess expectations in this context come from conventional thinking. And every high-performing team will meet expectations. And as we heard earlier, high-performing teams are rare and they are brilliant. Dream teams go further still. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. And that's why an unreasonable dream is such a compelling statement for me. You can look at people's upbringing. You can look at organizations and where they set the bar. And you can see massive differences between people and businesses and CEOs. Why is it that somebody equates success to passing a GCSE and somebody wouldn't be happy unless they got a doctorate? Why is it that somebody would be happy to play Sunday league football and somebody is compelled to play Premier League football or play in the Champions League or to be the best footballer in the world? 
There's all sorts of things at play here, but it partly comes back to where that bar is set and who sets that bar and then what expectations you demand of yourself and others around you. And I find that a fascinating thing to look at. Yeah, and, and the answer to that is it's the dream team that sets that bar, not the dream. But we'll get into that in, in a moment. And hey, we're going to agree that scale-up businesses, all good businesses, they're going to have a dream and they're going to have a dream team if they're going to be great. So that's not the point here. What we're exploring is which is more important, which you have to have first. So here's where I'll go first with this. Ian, are we talking about me or we? Because it seems to me that it's got to be we. If it's just the leader and a dream, a vivid, compelling vision, the type that you described, then there's a risk, isn't there, that what we end up with is some messianic vision followed blindly and unchallenged by the organisation and what actually we want is not that at all. We want to create a, a movement. We want a tribe. We want a, a vision that has buy-in and there's shared leadership to bring it to life through the organization. Now, you're always talking about Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. I mean, about every other episode, you're talking about <laughs> Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan absolutely had vision, but the way he achieved it was by galvanizing his team. So are we talking about me or are we talking about we? Well, I hate to agree with you, but we're talking about we. Actually, it's a shared creation of the vision. The way I have worked with leadership teams recently on recrafting visions, especially during uh, this funny period we're in with COVID, you know, they got into March, April, and the leadership team sat down and they said, do you know what? We had a vision that we were going to achieve something in three years' time, and quite frankly, we don't think we will anymore. So I worked with people to say, how do you recraft that? How do you shorten it? How do you make it maybe a year long, maybe 18 months long? But you start to focus on where, where are you going to be then? And my way of doing this is that you get your leadership team to spend a bit of time creating what their view of where the business could be on a certain day in the future individually, so you might pick in, in you know, normal times, whatever they are now, Ben, you might pick three years out. In COVID times, you might pick a shorter time scale and you say, OK, in three years out, you give them a date, you say, what does this business look like? And you give them criteria like culture, like turnover, like markets, like products, services, tools, whatever you want. So go away, write something down, a couple of pages and bring it back in and now we'll share it together. And everyone shares their view and puts it on the table about where this business could be. And that is the most rich conversation I've seen for a long time at a top team, because you'll get people saying, well, I think we could reach you know, 30 million. Others saying, well, I think it's 20. Some saying, well, we're going to launch this new product. Others saying, well, I didn't think we were launching that new product yet. And you get this fantastic series of challenges and debates about what the business is going to do. Yeah. Clearly, I mean, going back to the IBWE, clearly, and this is where some CEOs have challenged me on even running this exercise, the CEO oft often feels, well, hang on, shouldn't it be mine? And my pushback is, you're the CEO, you're the person who has the biggest biggest opportunity here to influence where where this goes. Because at the end of the day, you're being paid to make the big decisions around the table here. 
And so when all your directors come in and they say what the vision should be, you say, do you know what? We are going for 30 million. We are going to launch that product. But you walk out of that rather messy session, which is fantastic, with alignment and with clarity and with gold dust that you can inform the business about. Mm, yeah. Okay. So, so we need we, not me. And I agree with you. When I facilitate vision, I always work with the team, not just the founder or CEO. And the reason is it leads to a much bigger, richer vision. I often ask the founder to set the scene. And as you say, there are situations where they may need to be the tiebreaker. What I really want them to do, though, and the crucial part, I think, of a founder CEO role is to keep levels of belief high curate the levels of ambition and belief and as we go through that process you were describing what we're doing when we do it well is we're exploring what's possible the founder or ceo is in a prime place to keep the level of ambition high and as we explore from different angles we can get into can we build it can we sell it can we service it can we market it can we steal a march with what we're planning to do here And it does a couple of things. All of those different perspectives we've got around the table tend to amplify and enlarge the vision, put more options on the table, as you were describing, Ian. And because we explore it in that way, and with a diverse team providing perspective from each part of the business, we also generate this big belief that it's possible. So when we do this well, We really work with what's possible and both expand the vision and massively generate belief in it. Yeah. And it's funny. We said earlier that vision has to exceed our current ability. Often what I find is that all that limits our current ability is assumptions, those expectations we were talking about earlier. And I see this frequently. The first time a team defines vision this way It's great. It's a great conversation. It produces a vision that's more stretching, well-received and bought into. And then the surprising bit is because the vision is rooted in what's possible, it gets achieved more quickly and more completely than expected. Three-year visions achieved in two years are seen it time and again. The organization is moving faster. It's becoming high-performing. Then we do it again. We explore a new vision. And I love these sessions because now they define a vision that's really big and achievable. And this is when a team often tells me that they're exceeding their own expectations. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. But I do think and I have found the occasional CEO who doesn't believe in that and who believes they've got the vision in their head already. Mm. Um, And I recently lost a piece of work because I had a disagreement with somebody over that very thing. And so we didn't take it any further. Well, it's um, interesting though, isn't it? Because if that idea is in your head, the smart thing to do is still to develop it through the top team and let the top team live it, breathe it, explore it and bring it to life. And I reckon in that process, they're going to improve it. But let's say that your CEO there has nailed it. Yeah, and it's a perfectly formed idea. It can't be improved. Sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? Perfectly Mm. formed idea, and it can't be improved. But if it was, still, going through that process with the the team, they all become bought into it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. We're agreeing massively on this. And and as you've highlighted there, the beauty of spending a good few hours challenging with great questions about where you could be as an organization, your dream, your vision, and getting some broad product services, markets, uh, R&D, people requirements, culture. Uh, When you start talking about this big picture on where you could be, and what's possible, to use your, your word there, your planning process becomes so much easier because you haven't started with this vision statement, which is a useful thing to come out of a big narrative, a big vivid vision, but it's come out of a great deal of debate about what's possible. Um, and then what's useful for an organization sometimes is to create this vision statement, which is like extracting the juice from it uh, and then sharing it. And then, of course, the top team have then got to expand on that and, and make everyone aligned, everyone clear and everyone inspired to want yeah, to do that. Yeah. OK, so so let me um, let me come over there and get on your side of this for a minute, Ian, because I, I wonder, you know, back to those definitions and dream is the the rich, compelling, stretching vision for the organization. But what comes before that very often is an idea. And Mm. the founder, the CEO who feels, shouldn't I own this? There's a very valuable input uh, very often, I think, which is the idea that that develops and blossoms into that dream. And I think that would be my answer Mm. to your CEO there. That's an idea and it starts the conversation. Mm. Let me ask you a question, Ben, because I'd like to flip this back to you, to, you know, to your side of this team. And one of the points you made there about the reason you really like this book, and it was your top book, the Katzenbach book. Uh, Wisdom um, of Teams. Wisdom of Teams. You talked about this rarity of creating excellence in teams. You know, you can get a process, you can get alignment, you can get clarity, you can get cohesion, which is the word you used. But actually getting a really high performing team, a team that is truly excellent in what they are delivering, how do you get that? It's not a it's not a quick answer. Ian. These teams are rare. There's a lot that goes into it. A high performing team, they they have stretching purpose, they have clarity about their approach, they've got their composition, right? They're covering all the bases in terms of who do we need in the team and what skills do we need to to cover and have we handpicked the very best person for, for each of those positions. They've worked hard on cohesivity and we can use the Lencioni model for cohesivity. So they have trust, they generate productive conflict. That is to say they disagree productively, they commit they have accountability and they stay focused on the result they want to achieve. All of these, for me, they give us a real team, mm-hmm. a team that performs. And it's going to do great. Yeah, and it's certainly going to be up there with the teams around them and it's going to be meeting all sorts of expectations. It's it's not a dream team for me. A dream team goes further How do they do that? I think part of it is what we've been talking about. They get to that point, and at that point, they work on on their stretching purpose or the dream for the organization, the compelling, vivid vision for the organization. 
and what they create really stands apart because they're already a high-performing team. So when they produce, when they explore what's possible, they come up with a much bigger answer than others. What else differentiates those teams? How do you, how do you create them? Their levels of commitment are massive. For none of them is this a nine-to-five uh, job, and for none of them is this just about achieving the purpose of the team. They want each other to succeed massively in every dimension of their life, both professional and personal, and they're supporting each other on all fronts. And what that does is it puts every member on the team absolutely on their front foot in the most resourceful place they can be. And then the the other thing, they are great at regrouping. Yeah, high-performing teams, dream teams, they're going to run into problems. We talked about failure was not an option last time. You know, they're going to fail off and fail quick in order to find the very best way forward. And part of that is they're, they're great at regrouping. They've got a great capacity for fun uh, because that's one of the ways that, that teams regroup when things haven't gone to plan. So that's the rub of this. Although I think a dream team is essential to develop and achieve the biggest of visions it takes a really long time and the team has to form needs to become cohesive then it needs to begin to perform and it gets into high performance and then it keeps on going to become a dream team and we've got this sense of the team striving and constantly learning as it goes. And that's definitely a, a feature of team progression. And there's so much here, isn't there? This is why teams work with team coaches. But the one thing, and we all know this, the one thing is teams develop quickest under pressure. You can ask team after team after team, Tell me about the moment when this team was at its best and they will tell you about a moment of real pressure. And in that moment, the cohesivity dialed right up, the performance dialed right up, their inventiveness went through the, the roof. Uh, they pull massively together and they surprise themselves. So that's the simple answer. Keep the pressure high. And by doing that, we accelerate all of these processes. Here's a question, Ben, that, that that comes to mind in what probably both of us have been talking about, and that is you've talked about Mercedes and this huge team. Um, you know, I've talked about Michael Jordan and, you know, we talked about other sports stars. We talked about various CEOs. So the question for SMEs is, with my limited resources, which are, uh, you know, not going to be infinite, they're always going to be finite, can I develop? A dream team you know how easy is this going to be to do because we know we can't recruit the equivalent of lewis hamilton every week we've got mm. the people we've got yeah. around the table you know we can we can bring in people occasionally of course but but to create a really outstanding team what you're calling a dream team here is that possible for an sme or do we have to limit our our expectations of ourselves and what we can achieve both. Uh, it's absolutely possible. And this is why it's another reason why it's really important that it's the team that dreams the dream. 
because you know, at different stages in the in the story of that scale up business, you're absolutely right. That team's going to be smaller. There's going to be that that person, that function that they really want to cover, but we're just not far enough along yet to have that person in the team. So we're operating with a uh, a smaller team. That team can be cohesive. It can be performance, and it can drive into high performance. Uh, that team can develop the dream, dream, the dream. And I think that's really important because then when they explore what's possible, they're going to arrive at, if they're good at this, they're going to arrive at the very most that's possible for them in the coming period. Mm. But they're a high-performing team. So as they move forward and as they generate more success and more resource, they're really quickly going to say, right, we can do more now and uh, we need to add this person. Who do we know? And are they right for us? And are they going to fit in to who we are as a team as well as bringing their own brilliance? And so they'll be really careful. They will sort of hand pick new members. And of course, people leave teams as well. So this works both mm. ways. So absolutely, small organizations can have dream teams Dream teams will, by their nature, ensure that the dream is every bit as powerful as it can be. And they will redream re the dream frequently as they make progress towards mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, great answer. I think this comes back to what we were saying earlier, or, you know, where I got that phrase from, unreasonable <laughs> dream, was the TEDx I did. But it wasn't a phrase I started with. I started with uh, a different title to my talk, but it had the same content. And when I gave the uh, trial run, I had used in the talk the phrase, people need an unreasonable dream. And somebody in the panel said, that's the hook. That's what you need in the title. Mm. So I put it in the title and it stayed with me ever since, which is interesting because one of the places it came from was the quote from Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And her quote, which sits right at the heart of this for me, is the size of your dreams must always exceed your current capacity to achieve them. And I have to admit, I had to read that three or four times to figure out what, what it meant. Yeah. But if you deconstruct that and say, if you already have the capacity and capability to achieve your dream today, it's going to be pretty easy and pretty boring. And so... Once you create a dream that exceeds your current capacity to achieve it, the only thing you can do as a leadership team, which is what you were saying, I think, is to grow, to learn, to get resources you don't have. And, and therefore, you keep setting, as you said, a vision that gets bigger, plans that get bolder. Mm. And, and, and the energy of your people, the excitement, the growth, the learning just keeps expanding. And of course, so does the business success in whatever uh, direction you're aiming. Yeah, well, there's there's a there's a yin and a yang here, isn't there? But but listening to you talking about Ellen Sirleaf, you know, one of the things that great teams don't do is simple or boring. It's in mm. their nature to strive and to stretch and to be creative and to have a lot of fun doing it. 
which is you know, exactly the same set of qualities that spring into life with a, an Ellen Sirleaf type dream that exceeds our mm. ability to, to create it. So that's where all of this comes together. And I, I, I think I maintain that a dream team is essential, but you know, we've really expanded this, haven't we? Uh, there's an idea that seeds the dream and equally there's a a team that becomes the dream team so it's not chicken and egg and I knew it wouldn't be but maybe yeah there's there's idea and team and then there's dream team and dream I think probably that's the way I would lay this out it's interesting because I was trying to figure out you know we get into the final part of this and we're going to be saying well what does come first and of course you're right you need both and I was thinking of even, you know, Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise. You know, they have a they have an impossible mission to go and achieve, but they've got a team and they've got a great team, which is already there mm. to try and do that. I also have just thought about the book Clive Woodward wrote about the England rugby team and their journey to become world champions in 2003. And right at the beginning of the book, he talks about walking into the room full of elite athletes and they all sort of you know, gently made their way to their seats. Some of them were late. They're on mobile phones. They had their arms folded. They couldn't believe why they were in a room and not on the rugby pitch or in the gym. And he realized very quickly that they need something to tie these guys together. They need something to aim at. They, they, they were a team, but they weren't very functional at the time. Mm. They needed something to bond them, to tie them together, to aim at. And he said to them, uh, having taken input from many of the senior players, because this is a big group of people, and they said, which was, if you're in rugby union, really, there's only one dream, isn't there? So it's fairly easy in a sense. But we want to be the number one team in the world, and we want to win the World Cup. And he got the date wrong, but they eventually did it. But one of the interesting things that came out of that, that journey to just lay that down and say, that's where we're going to be. And some people would have gone, ooh, I think they were sixth or seventh in the world at the time and they were winning as many as probably they were losing. The interesting thing that came out of me was he used the phrase number one team in the world about everything. So it became a decision filter, which is one of the things, you know, I use for vision, which was if what would the number one team in the world do about strength conditioning? What would the number one team yep. in the world do? Yep do about peripheral vision what the number one team in the world what sort of hotel would they stay in what sort of physiotherapist would they have so they started thinking like the number one team in the world and i think this is a real lesson for us all to say you know if we want to be like this we have to we have to be like that today we have to act like that today and we have to stretch ourselves pretty damn quickly and set these really high expectations of what we demand of each other and how we're going to be in order to go on this journey? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Any team can ask it, can't they? If we were the number one at what we do, what would that be like? And you've got me thinking about a company I know very well called Curve. And Curve has had explosive growth, brilliant growth. And to begin with, they were aiming at size metrics, I guess, which they measured in in a bunch of ways, number of customers, size of job, turnover, these sorts of things, um, quantifiable size. And they've grown fantastically and quickly doing that. And now there's been a shift, and I hear them talking about 
becoming and being the number one team at what they do. And of course, by being that team, they're going to continue to smash their goals, more easily achieve their vision. And I think a lot of companies do this. At startup and at various points, it's about heavy lifting and the milestone wins and proof points. Then it shifts into being the best at what we do and the number one team and achieving even more with that change of focus. Ian, let's wrap this up. I think we've already answered which is more important, dream or dream team. We need both. There's an idea and a team and then a dream and a dream team, maybe in that order. Just quickly though, which is the most misunderstood? Oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, I think I think dream team, the way you've described it, Ben, is probably misunderstood. Uh, it's quite a complex recipe to get right to develop a, a, a real dream team good dealing with human beings and trying to get them to understand what that takes to commit to it and get on that journey and get on the emotional side of it get the energy right you know get the commitment which you talked about right that's really really hard i mean the things we're talking about here are really hard i i, I think misunderstood also though uh, when i talk to groups um, about vision, purpose, mission, values, and strategy, I have to start with, let's look at the definitions of each of them because people mix up vision, mission, purpose. Yeah. Uh, and we misuse the word strategy all the time. So, I, you know, I think in terms of clarity, that's where organisations have to, to have to start, actually, when they go out and say, we've got a vision. It's better to, you know, sometimes it's better to say in organisations, We've got something that helps us get to where we want to be, mm, and, yeah. and it's a vision. Yeah. So I think they're both. I think they're both slightly misunderstood. I think they need to be unravelled, unpacked. Uh, they need to be really clearly stated. What's the hardest? You know, uh, maybe the question that goes through my head is, what's the harder one to get right? You know, what's the harder one to develop? I agree with you about which is more misunderstood. Um, dream teams are the hardest to to develop. I think mm. there's far too many mediocre teams out there. But I do see good teams, mm. but from good to great, from team to dream team, I think that's exceedingly rare. Yeah. And back to your problem, what you were saying about how vision is misunderstood. One of the things I think undermines vision is, is people often think it's more set in stone yeah. than in reality it is. Yeah. Visions are constantly developing and getting bigger and richer, as we've described. We need to hang on to them because we need to achieve what's in the vision. But it's a mistake to let that vision stand still. Yeah, couldn't agree right. more. No, I completely agree with you, which is odd because I didn't think we would. But creating uh, uh, the, the dream team is is really hard. It takes months and years, and it's a never-ending goal. But it's incredible when you start to look around the table and say, we've got something special here. Ian, I knew we'd have fun with this one. It's taken my thinking further about dream and dream teams. So thank you for that. And I have to go because in a few minutes time, I'm recording an interview for our next episode. So Ian, thanks again. See you soon. Yeah, great to uh, chat this through today, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gritty Leaders Club. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and join the club. If you'd like to ask a question or offer an opinion or even suggest a guest, 
please get in touch with ian at ianwindle.com or ben at benwales.com. We'd love you to join our club and tell us what you think.